Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. With everything you need, all in one place, let me explain. Anchor has the tools to allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We just lost a legend. We just lost a guy. Ah, My pops. I remember the very first time I went fishing. I was three years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember setting on the, my dad was running double half day off of the San Clemente Pier. And what was really cool is I grew up at the San Clemente Pier. So where all most guys were in a harbor or something getting on boats, we were bordering the boats off the pier. But when I was three years old, I didn't know what my dad did. I just know he left for work every day. And when he came home at night, he was covered in salt and scales, fish scales. And I didn't even know what a fish scale was, but he would tell me what they were. They, you know, they were all over his shirt and his pants and his belt. I remember chewing on his belt when I was a kid, baby because it had salt on it. And it felt good in my mouth when I was teething. I swear, I remember all this like it was just... I know it's hard to think that you remember this stuff when you're a little kid, but I do. And uh, three years old, sitting on the counter. We're going on the afternoon trip with my dad. And my mom putting my shoes on while I'm sitting on the counter telling me we're going fishing with my dad. And uh, he was running the some fun off the pier. And the boat was tying up to the pier and I was sitting on the rail with my mom holding me. And she's saying, that's your dad. Sorry. It's all right. And him coming out on the back of the boat. I'm sorry. And him waving at me and saying, Hi, David. Oh, I had no idea this was going to hit me this hard. But, yeah, I'm 60 years old, and I remember it like it was right now. And then we went to go down the ramp and get on the boat. It was incredible, and it was that was it. I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wanted to fish. I wanted to take people out fishing. I want. I love to fish. Don't get me wrong. If I could piss a puddle, I would fish in it. But there was nothing brought me more joy than watching people catch their first fish, watching them, and I got to do that so many times. My whole life's been about teaching people how to fish. And it all from that day when I was three years old. And I didn't mean to lose it, but I couldn't help it. Because it it's my passion. It's there, every part of my life, every part of my being, every part of everything is about taking people fishing. Or 
just being out there on the water and just watching the effect it has on other people. You know, like I got to see a little preview of your show right now and, and just seeing the people's faces and the smiles from catching a fish. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing better than that feeling of watching your friend or somebody you know or someone you never met before in your life and you get to catch them their very first fish and you get to see that smile on their face and then you get to be known as the guy that taught them how caught them their first fish and then teaching people how to do that over and over again and that's what my dad did to me he took me out there on the boats when I was a little kid and he taught me how important it was to give back what we were so lucky to have and to teach people what we have and the ability to catch fish and to teach people how we were able to catch those fish. That whole thing goes back to when I was three years old going out with my dad because he was the guy. He was in the industry. He was the guy. There's so many people that can tell you, they can sit here in front of the camera with Michael and tell you who's the most influential person in their life. My really good friend, Steve Lasley, I mean, he's a kind of a big deal in the industry. He'll tell you, my dad gave him his first job working on a boat. Very first job. Frank Lepresti, he's kind of a big deal in the industry. His first time driving a boat was working for my dad off the San Clemente Pier. That's who he was, and that's who I try to emanate myself as that guy. I try to help many as many people as I can, and I know. A lot of people misread what I do and they don't quite understand. It's all about teaching people how to fish. And it, the years of holding on to all that stuff and keeping it hidden so that no one knew what was going on or how we were getting what we were getting, that was silly because there were so many people that weren't enjoying the sport of fishing. And I think we all need to catch. In order to enjoy it, you got to catch something. You got to be able to catch a fish. I mean, you go out there, take a kid out fishing and they don't catch anything and it's rough and windy and cold, they're done. Yeah. They're never coming back. I don't care if Wahoo are biting on the bait barge. They're not going. Once you ruin it for them. So that's why I thought it was so important. And for so many years now, I've been giving back to the industry and teaching people how to fish. But it goes back to that day when I was three years old. I fish every day. That's what I get to do. That's my passion. That's what I do. But I'm going to Catalina for two days. And everything in my being is thinking about this fishing trip to go to Catalina for Friday and Saturday to go fishing. It takes up every part of my being. And I check in my head. I have a checklist of all the things I got to make sure that I have. This is how crazy fishing is for me. That everything about leading up to that day is a checklist in your head. And I know it's the same thing with you. We're both kind of wired exactly the same way. So the passion is so deep inside that I'm 60 years old. I've been fishing, like I said earlier, since I was three years old. It's always been my passion. The drive is incredible. And I, I listened to Barry on your show just a minute ago. And like he said, if there's water around, the whole thing in our head is thinking about, is there a fish in that water? Could there be a fish in that water? Where could that fish be in that water? I look at the ocean or I sit on your deck and take a pee and look out in the canyon and I, I know the ocean's right there. All I'm thinking about is what's in that water? What is in that water? How can I get what's in that water to bite my line? That That's like the drive. It's like how can I trick whatever's... I don't care if I'm in a stream or if I'm in the ocean fishing for giant bluefin. Wherever I'm at, 
My mindset is how can I trick that fish into eating what's on the end of my line? I want to know that I did everything on my pos- that I have in my being to get that bite. It's all about the bite. It's all about the bite. After the bite, when he bites my line, I don't care what happens after that. I got him to bite it. I'll hand the pole to somebody else. And I want to get another bait out there or another lure out there. And I want to get the next bite. That was the cool thing about running sport boats for so long. I had 30, 40, 50, 60 people that I could hand the pole to the minute I got a bite. There's nothing better than a handoff. When you can hand off a fish and then grab another rod and throw another bait and get another bite, you want the bite. The bite is the coolest thing in the world. There's nothing better than the back of my neck. I want a bite. I want a bite. And like I just fished with one of our really good friends, Mark Rare, over on the East Cape. Him and I, we drove up to Lopez Mateo. And him and I, we he's been fishing for a living for a long time. I've We drove in his motorhome. All we talked about the whole way there was how are we going to get those snook to bite our hook? That's I mean, here's two. 60 and 70 year old men driving in a car talking about the bite talking about the bite nothing matters more than the bite we want the bite we want to get a bite it's so cool to get a bite right that's all you want let me get a bite how can i trick that fish into letting me get a bite i want a bite i always want a bite i just want a bite that's nowhere where i'm at i want to get a bite go fly fishing i want to get a bite. i want to see that fish take the fly so that's it it, whatever I'm throwing out there, if that's what it takes, the popper or the surface iron or this live sardine or a live mackerel or a deception, flash jig, whatever I throw on the end of my line. It's The only reason I tied it there was so that I could get a bite. I want a bite. The bite is the most important part of the whole thing for me. Yes. It's the bite. And I might take all day for me to get the bite, but I'm as excited about it as I was when the sun rose as I was when the sun set all day long and once I get that bite you're going to hear me scream like a little girl and I'm going to jump up and down and run around in circles in my head because I got the bite I got the bite it's the most exciting thing for me and people say all the time when they go fishing with me they're like my goodness you got a bite and you act like it's the first bite you ever got well that's how deep that passion is it's about the bite and wherever I go, whatever I do, when I'm looking at the water, I'm thinking, how can I get that? Whatever, I don't even know what's swimming there, but I know I can try to figure out how to get that to bite. So my father is the late, great Don Hansen. He's been, he was in the industry since 1947. And he started his career working off the end of the San Clemente Pier when he was a little, wharf rat, or a little pier rat, carting fish off the pier for 25 cents a wagon load when he was like 11 years old. The, the whole interview with him is over at my website at Your Saltwater Guide. We chronicle his whole life. And uh, I was blessed to grow up. I don't even know where I would be today. When I'd ever got into fishing, I don't know. But man, it was in my blood from before I was born because my dad's fished his whole life. But he didn't even know he wanted to fish because he was carting fish off the end of the San Clemente Pier for 25 cents a wagon load. That's what he went to the pier for when he was going to school in San Clemente as a little kid. He heard that if you went down there with your wagon at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when the sport fishing boats came into the end of the San Clemente Pier, that all the fishermen had these giant sacks, gunny sacks, full of fish. 
and they'd have to drag them down the pier. The pier was 400 feet long and they'd have to drag those bags down the pier. But if you showed up with your wagon, the men would give you a quarter to wheel their fish in your wagon to the end of the pier. And so as soon as my dad found out there was money involved, he was there. He was just 11 years old, but man, you get a quarter and he had it figured out that he could be right there, get that first bag, haul ass to the end of the pier, drop that fish off to the man, and then turn around. He would run till he would do two in a day. Most kids would just drag their one, but my dad wanted two quarters, so he would haul ass and run down the pier and get two bags of fish. And then in 1963, 64, I was three years old, 64, my dad was running the sum fun off the end of the pier. It was brand new. He built it in 62. My father built the boat with a couple of guys up in uh, at the Huntington Beach Power Plant, right in front of it. There's a big flat area right in front of the plant. That's where he built the sum fun. And he built the sum fun there, and then they launched it in Newport, closed all the streets and ran it down like they did all the old Ditmars. They did the same thing with the Searcher and all the old Ditmars, the Seahorse, the Thunderbird, the Fury. They would close all the streets and then launch the boat down there at the seawall in front of Delaney's and whatever you call it. That's like was the launch ramp back then. But I was three years old and my mom, I remember her putting on my shoes and taking me down to the pier and taking me down to go fishing with my dad. And that part of the interview is on here. And there was nothing more special. I didn't really know what my father did, but I knew that he was out on the boat all day but I didn't even know what fishing was. I was three years old, but I was getting to go fish with my dad when I was three. I remember my mom putting my shoes on, taking me down to the pier, standing on the edge of the pier, my dad backing the sun fun into the pier and coming out on the back deck and, and uh, waving to me and telling me, come on down and we get to go down the ramp and get on and back in there and the pier... The waves would go up and down and they would throw three people on and then the boat would come back by the ramp and then they'd throw a couple more people on. You could never get away with that today. That just would never happen, man. The minute you touch somebody, they would sue you. But you had to grab them by the arm and push them onto the boat because there was seconds as the boat would come up and down. As If you imagine the, the piers right here and the boat's in the swell and it would right as it would go by the ramp, three people would get on and then it would go back up, come back down. Three people would get on. And if you hesitated you would go in the water. They would very, my father tells the story, they never lost anybody. No one ever died. That's huge. That's a big feather in their cap. But once a year, maybe someone would go in the water. They wouldn't die though. Deckhand would jump right in and they would save the person. But it's just that minute of, second of hesitation where you would be afraid to get on, where nowadays that would never fly. That would never fly. There's no insurance company that would insure you but that's how I grew up on the pier. I remember when I was little, the other captains. Now, when I think about it today, this is what's really funny, Michael, is those poor guys that worked for my father, they would, have, they would work your ass off all day. And then they knew that tomorrow was the day they'd have to pick up the owner's kid at the house. I think about that now and I'm like, oh, how shitty for those guys. <laughs> Not for me, though. I was stoked. But oh, could you imagine? you got to go at 4 o'clock in the morning to the boat, but now you got to go at 3.45 because you got to swing by the boss's house and pick up his snot-nosed little brat kid. But that's what they did. 
they would come by and they'd pick me up and then we'd all go to the pier together. I'd walk out with the guys, you know, Ray DeWayne, Bob Lorman, Gary Kate, John Manzer, all the old legends of the industry, man. Those were the guys that I grew up idolizing, staring up to, and they would walk out to the end of the pier with me at four o'clock in the morning as a little kid and we'd climb down the ladder because the ramp wouldn't get lowered until the boats would come in. So we'd climb down this steel ladder. They would drop the skiff into the water from a crane. And then you'd climb down the steel ladder, get on the skiff. And then, and it had like a 10 horse fucking out, oh, sorry, sorry. 10 horse outboard on it. And you'd all the way out to the boats that were setting on big cans, mooring cans like at Catalina, but they were in front of the San Clemente Pier. And a little kid, and you'd go out to the boat, and there would be like six guys on these little skiff, this tiny skiff, but two guys would get on one boat, two guys would get on the other boat, then two guys would get on the third boat, and they would go out there, and they'd get the generators lit up, and they'd get the grill going, and get the boat started up. Then they'd swing over to the bait boat, pick up some bait. Then they'd slide into the pier at six o'clock in the morning and pick up their passengers. That's how I grew up. It was the most insane thing. I'm so happy that I got to be in that world as a little kid. It was incredible, but that was all building the passion. But to think back, the captains, how bitching were they to pick me up? That was so cool, so rad of them. And I tell them, the ones that are still alive, I tell them how influential they were to me and how special it was to be a part of that as a little kid growing up. And my father, no matter what anybody says out there, those of you that know me, you know, and those of that don't, you just think I was grown up with a silver spoon in my mouth? No. My dad worked his ass off. There was nothing given to him. He powered his way through everything he did and he gave me nothing. He made me work just like he had to work. I worked from the very bottom all the way up. I scrubbed rods in the office. We, back in the day, all the boats would carry 60 people every single day, every trip. Pe- pe- that was it. And all the boats, and all those boats had rent rods on them. And so it wasn't uncommon for my dad to rent 300 fishing rods at six o'clock in the morning to all the boats. And then the boats would come back in at 1130. And then there'd be 120 people waiting to go back out again and you'd have to get the rent rods ready. You'd have to scrub them, get all the scales off, rinse them off with fresh water and then rig them. Put a hook and a little tiny split or a rubber core sinker on each rod. I remember it. And that was what I was doing when I was 11 and 12 years old, working in the office from 12 o'clock until 5.30 at night. Because when all the boats would come in at 3.30, then you'd have 350 rent rods that you'd have to get done and get ready for the next morning. And that's how I started scrubbing the rent rods and being there and showing up every day. And yeah, I got hassled more than most kids because my dad was the boss. You can't even imagine all the days I spent crying in the back room cleaning fishing rods because all the captains and all the deckhands and everybody would give, the, the, the they called me the prince. They'd give the prince so much crap. You can't even imagine. But I stayed there and I stayed in and I've got thrown in the harbor more than anybody on the planet Earth because, man, if it was my birthday or if it was something special, I was getting thrown in. You didn't want anybody to know it was anything special that happened because I was going to get thrown in the water. But when I was 14 and a half, I remember deckhand didn't show up for the Cypolaris in the morning, and I was in the office selling tickets with uh, this 
lady that ran the office for my father, Jody, and uh, Oscar Simon came into the office and he's like, I got no deckhand and my charter were leaving and I was 14 and a half and I was the deckhand that day. Never Didn't know sh- nothing about being a deckhand, but I remember it like it was yesterday going out on the boat and we, that was when the sand, back when the sand bass were biting and you catch 200 sand bass that day on the Cyplers for 20 people and maybe another 100 barracuda and then a handful of bonita and a couple yellowtail. And I'm it. I'm the deckhand. I can't fillet a fish. I don't even know which how to hold the fillet knife. Now I got a fillet, 300 and something fish. Yeah, it was unbelievably brutal. That was my very first time as a deckhand. And I'll never forget it. And that was just part of the deal. Then I got to I made it through that day and then I got to start working on the boats for Simon a little bit on the weekends with my my dad would give me permission to work on there instead of working in the office, which now I got a taste of the boat. I didn't want to work in the office cleaning the rods anymore. I want to be out there on the boat, man. That's where all the fun is. That's where the excitement was. Then when I was 15, my dad lied to John Haas and told him I was 16 because John wouldn't let you work on the boats. They were fishing San Clemente Island every day. On the Back then, the, the Fury was called the Fury 2, and John Haas owned the Fury 2. And they were fishing San Clemente Island every day but Monday. Every single day but Monday, and the boat left at midnight. Back then, all the overnight boats, not the San Diego boats, but the overnight boats up above San Diego, all left at midnight. From Oceanside, Newport, Dana Point, or San, Dana Point and then San Pedro, everybody left at midnight, and they were fishing San Clemente Island for Calico Bass. So John Haas let me start working on the Fury. Thought I was 16. I was only 15. And we were fished every day in the summertime. I got out of school back then in the beginning of June. And we fished San Clemente Island every day. Except Mondays were your day off. That was the only day off you got. That was it. There was no two days a week off. And you worked eight hours a day. And you got paid minimum wage. No. You got $25 for the whole 20-hour day. And that was if everything went smooth. It was only a 20-hour day. Because you get, you leave at midnight, but you had to be there at 11 to get the boat ready to go. And I'm a 15-year-old kid. Could you imagine 15-year-old kid nowadays? Work that work ethic like that? And then we would go to San Clemente. I would take five hours to get there. And John requested one deckhand up at night, deck watch. So me and the other deckhand would split it. So you'd get like two hours to lay down. And, you know, sleep, just because you get to lay down for two hours, that doesn't mean you slept for two hours. That means you laid down, it took 15 minutes to fall asleep, rolling around, and God, if it was rough, then you didn't get any sleep. And then they'd shake your foot, you were back up. And what were you doing? Up at 4.30 in the morning because we're pulling into San Clemente Island. You're dropping the anchor and all the people are waking up and now it's time to start fishing and you would fish till 2 or 2.30 in the afternoon. If the bite was really good, we'd stretch it out to 2.45 or something. And then we'd do our five-hour ride back. And on that way back, you had to fillet all the fish. And back then, we caught limits of calico bass and a bunch of rockfish and you 44 people on the boat, you'd have 440 calico bass and then a couple handful, maybe 200 more rockfish and then maybe a couple yellows and some barracuda and bonita mixed in. 
So you'd fillet all those fish on the way back in, and then you'd start to see the point coming, and you're like, shit, we got to get these fish done, because then you got to clean the boat. Then you got to go downstairs and wake all the people up that are sleeping and get them up to go pay their galley tabs, and then you would turn the bunk room over, fold all the blankets, change the pillowcases, and right about the time you got the last pillowcase changed, You'd hear the boat slow down because we're pulling into the harbor. Then you have to get up stairs, help all the people off, get all their all their fish off and all their stuff off. And then what do you do? You rinse the boat off real quick with fresh water because you didn't get it clean that good with salt water. Rinse it off real quick with fresh water. Go to the fuel dock, get fuel, come back over. Now it's 8 30, 9 o'clock. Got to make out sack tags, get all the new sacks hung up, and then. It's 10, and the people are going to start loading at 11, and you're right back at it again, 15 years old. I remember it so many times, scrubbing the boat on the way in, crying, just going, oh my God, this sucks. But no, I did not want to be there. I'm not saying I didn't want to be there. There was not a part of me that didn't want to go. I wanted to be there all day, every day. That's how it all started. And nowadays, I look at these guys that are doing this this bluefin thing they're getting zero sleep because they're going by the time they get out the boat all straightened out or anything the guy's pulling the throttles back they're on the bluefin already and those things are biting at one in the morning they leave at nine by the time they get bait and get out of the harbor and get out there they're on the spot at one in the morning they start fishing there's no sleep anymore I, that's why you can't keep good get a good cruise anymore there's just way too much work it's hard. I wouldn't want to be sport boat captain nowadays just trying to figure out how to get these crews some sleep and some rest and keep a fresh crew or even get anybody that wants to work. That's got to be gnarly. And back then, fuel was very inexpensive. It was 30 cents a gallon. 30 cents a gallon, 50. I mean, when I started, it was 16, 15, 20 cents was on unheard of but yeah so it was a very affordable to go out fishing all day on the boat you could do all day trip for 30 bucks to san Clemente island or Catal- catalina would be like 27.50 or something and if they went to Clemente, they 30 bucks 35 crazy to think back to those days but yeah you could fill the whole boat up with fuel put 2,000 gallons of fuel on the boat and you didn't have to take a second out on your house <laughs> crazy Different days, different times. There is a lot of similarities because what those guys did back in the very beginning was they were breaking the code because like what I was watching with William Holder and Farnsworth and those guys, there was nobody had done any of this stuff before. So just like this, for example, something that people can understand, the deep drop swordfish thing. Okay, this is new. People say, oh, I've been doing it. No, well, then you forgot to tell anybody because there's a, Michael and I have been trying to keep an eye on what's going on out here. And this deep drop swordfish thing got really big in the last five years. And before that, the code hadn't been cracked. Well, so what's your question? Well, I think a lot of what we did on the sport boat thing was the evolution of these guys, these old timers back in the 1800s and early 1900s, cracking the code, figuring out what the fish ate, how they acted, what what cycles the cycles is a huge thing in the sport fishing industry when does the stuff show up here at this spot when does it show up here reading the current 
all those different things that help the sport boat industry to evolve into what it is today, taking people fishing. Like I say a lot in my, on my website, yoursaltwaterguide.com, and I teach a lot, is uh, anybody can go catch fish for two guys on a boat. That's kind of easy. All you got to do is look for something that looks fishy. If you know how to read current and stuff, you can catch fish for two people. Go out and catch fish for 60 people three times a day, day in and day out, day in and day out, every single day. And then if you could do that, then this taking a yacht or taking a guy fishing on his private boat is pretty simple. It is. Because if you can crack the code to catch fish for 60 people every day, and that's what we were able to do back in those days and, and take the knowledge that guys like my father and those old-time captains before him had taken. And they learned from the guys at the tuna club or what, hey, these guys are catching this tuna here at the island. So then the boat started fishing Catalina, the front side of the island. And I remember when I was a kid anchoring up Toyon Bay or Gallagher's or Long Point. And there'd be three or four or five sport boats lined up. Whoever was there first got the premier spot and the other guys sat around the edges of them but nobody knew what the premier spot was until Holden and those guys figured out where these fish were living at Catalina can you imagine bluefin tuna not even a 16th of a mile off the rocks at Catalina well it was happening all the time in the 60s when I was a kid just getting my teeth cut. These guys were fishing bluefin at Catalina on the front side of the island which is unheard of now because not because the fish aren't there, it's because of that animal that lives there. That animal has destroyed that fishery at Catalina. If that animal wasn't there, there would be so much more fish at Catalina. But that animal has made it almost impossible to fish that front side of the island unless there's 40 boats. But that bluefin's still there. They saw it last year there on the front side of the island, swimming around by uh, what? Hamilton's Cove up to Long Point. There was rogue schools of fish swimming up and down there. I just think that big brown furry animal slows that fish down from wanting to hang out because no fish wants to get eaten. And that when you got a big lion cruising up and down, just like you and I, if there was a lion, in, a mountain lion in your front yard right now, Michael, we wouldn't go outside. We would be stuck inside here. And I think that has a lot to do with why that barracuda doesn't show up at Catalina like it used to. That barracuda doesn't show up on the coast like it used to, and it's a direct correlation of what happens at the Credinado Island or Coronado Islands because that fish migrates up, but it can't get past the gauntlet of the Coronado. This is just my theory. I know there's a bunch of theories, but this is my theory. I think that giant biomass of barracuda doesn't come past the Coronados because of the phenomenal amount of sea lions. That sea lion has a direct correlation of what we're doing on the ocean now, where you can take all the knowledge and all the things we know and everything, and you can set up perfect on the spot. But anywhere on the front side of Catalina, the minute you set up perfect on a spot, you got five, six, 10, 12, 15 sea lions on you where you can't get a bait through them. Well, that keeps all those fish from wanting to come. And I don't hate sea lions at all. I love them. If I was to be reincarnated, like I've said on a lot of different places, I would want to be a sea lion. Because the only thing that scares me today is healthcare. I mean, at our age, and you can testify to this, health is the scariest thing. We want to, all we want to do is stay alive and enjoy the bitchin' life that we've got. 
But healthcare is a scary thing and it costs a fortune. But California sea lions have free healthcare. And they get to be, there's, they used to live for 20 years. Now they live for 50, 40, 50 years. They weigh 2,000 pounds. There was never a 2,000 pound sea lion when we were kids. They lived for 20 years and that was their lifespan. But now we've taken this wild animal and we gave them antibiotics and we vaccinate the sea lion. We do. Whether you believe it or not, we vaccinate them so nothing can harm them. And I don't know, we got into this because it's just a natural correlate because people go, oh, the good old days, fishing was really good back. It could still be that way. Positively, absolutely, I believe 100% it could be really phenomenal if it wasn't for that big animal. That big animal has a direct correlation on what we catch up and down the California coast and at the islands. It's just a gnarly thing. We fished those white sharks. Once Jaws came out and everybody saw all the excitement, everybody wanted a white shark. Everybody wanted a white shark or a big, giant mako shark. Everybody wanted a big mako shark. And uh, the killer whales, there's only a handful of those killer whales that like to eat sea lions. There's some that only eat salmon. There's some that only eat tuna. And there's some that only eat dolphins. And there's a small amount that only eat sea lions. But it's never going to slow down the population of them. You could bring every killer whale on the planet in here and it's, it's not going to slow them down because they're just, there's no natural predator and there's no die-off of the species. That animal's not allowed to die at all. They can't die. We're a human. We can die tomorrow. And uh, Dave Hansen died. Oh, it's terrible. But boy, if a sea lion dies... We're going to spend billions of dollars of our resources to figure out why that animal died. And then we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that no other sea lion ever dies. How weird is that? It's kind of strange that we're so invested into an animal because he looks cute and cuddly on the outside. They're a filthy, dirty animal. They are. They're not clean by any stretch of the imagination. And they don't want to be in the harbors. I know I'm off to a tangent, but they don't. The ones that are in the harbors and crawling up on boats in Newport and up and down San Francisco, Monterey, those are all homeless animals. They have nowhere else to go because all the rookeries up and down the coast at the islands are packed. There's nowhere for this animal to go because you have no die-off. We've totally destroyed Mother Nature. We've decided we know more about Mother Nature than Mother Nature does. We vaccinated a wild animal. The only thing that killed sea lions in the past was ring, was lungworm. They had a disease called lungworm. Well, we eradicated that in the 80s. We made sure that no sea lion would ever die of natural disease that was there to... So now they tell us that the reason why these sea lions are starving is because of fishermen. Because we take too many sardines. Forage fish. Michael, this is really, this is a hot subject right now. This is what we're fighting in Southern California is our bait. Our bait. They want to take away our bait that the original old timers, the 1800 guys learned how to fish live bait, sardines and anchovies. And now you're going to tell us we're not allowed to have those anymore because that's a forage fish for the California sea lion, which there's no need to save that animal and fishing, I mean, look at the passion I have for fishing that I turn on to so many people. You're going to take that away from our children for no reason at all? That's pretty scary. It's the beginning of time. Right, like I just saw on your, they got cave drawings of people fishing. Cleopatra, I mean, I didn't know that, but yeah. There's, 
It goes back a long ways. Fishing, sport fishing, fishing for fun. Unbelievable that they want to abolish that. And they, I think they just want our children to just be staring at those iPads and not going outside and not having a tan and not giving natural immunity and all that, those things that go with going out on the ocean and breathing fresh air and catching a fish and taking it home and eating the fish that you caught. How, how spectacular for a child to get to taste that fish that they caught that they went fishing with their dad early in the morning and got to go out and catch that fish and go home and have mom cook it and eat that fish. How We want to take that away. How sad. Totally. You're right there. Whatever higher power, whatever your higher power is that you believe in, you're right connected with it when you're on the ocean, when you're out there on the water and you're touching the, the whole thing and you're feeling that salt air going in and out of your lungs and you're just feeling the sun on your face and then that bite getting that bite and handing the pole to the child that's with you and letting them wind in that fish and getting that experience and seeing that giant smile on their face and then going home and eating that fish and finding out that they're not a criminal because they took a fish home and ate it it's pretty cool it's a pretty bitching thing that's why i do what I do. That's why I built that bitchin' website. That's why I teach people on a daily basis that it's okay to go outside and fish. And you're not a criminal for going fishing, which I can't even comprehend how that ever happened. Where was I? Was I asleep that day when we decided that fishermen are criminals? So sad. Unbelievable. There's no way that a, a, a sport fisherman with a rod and a reel and a piece of string it's going to hurt a fisher. Can adversely affect the population of the fish in the ocean. Cannot do it. Nope. Cannot do it. I say it on stage all the time. I do 50 seminars a year. And I say, I don't even care. Not even Michael Folks is that good at fishing that he can affect the population of fish with a piece of line and a hook and dropping it into the water. It just can't happen. And we're not talking about giant industrial dredgers that are dredging. We're talking about people going fishing with a fishing pole on a boat. To think we have an adverse effect on the population is ridiculous and ludicrous, but we're the ones that they're all after because we're the lowest hanging fruit. Fishermen, we can't agree on anything. There's not one of us that agrees on anybody else's. And my, my outlook on the whole thing has been very controversial since I was a little kid. I've always, but I don't have a filter and I've always told everybody how I feel. And there's millions of guys that don't believe in what I believe and I don't believe in what they believe. But man, we can't stand united. That's our biggest problem as fishermen. I mean, NRA, they're united, boy. You're not getting one of our, you're not getting one bullet out of one gun. The NRA is not letting you in. We're tight. They're tight. Fishermen, oh, we can't agree on, we gave them our calico bath. We just gave them, here, take the calico bath. Take them, take them away. You can have, oh, nobody needs 10. Oh, and pfft. Why would you want 12? Ah, take it to four, ah, take it to a thousand pounds. There's so many people that don't even know that anytime you give something, they're all like, whoa, they're on you in a second going, oh, well, she, if they're giving that away, then they must understand there's a problem. Well, there really wasn't a problem, but we all couldn't agree that the Calico Bass population was fine. And so we were throwing sardines, 14-inch sardines out for bait, trying to catch 12-inch calico bass. And we couldn't catch them 
because everybody knows a 12-inch bass can't eat a 14-inch sardine. So we, there aren't any left. And then they just took them. And then they were like, oh, wasn't that nice? Oh, it was a warm, fuzzy feeling. They took our bass. And who needs 10 anyway? I only eat one or two. At a t- Don't tell me how hungry I am, right? And then an hour after that, they, did, they threw the MLP on us. And then all the guys were like, whoa, well, those of you that gave them the calico bass, you helped that MLP because they were like, wow, fishermen understand now there's a problem. Well, there wasn't a problem. There wasn't. There was a lack of ability to know how to fish. That's why you couldn't catch a 12 or a 14-inch calico. It wasn't because they weren't there. You've stuck your head underwater. Everywhere you go, you put your head underwater. There's a million calico bass everywhere. They, they're everywhere. But we gave them that, and then they took the MLP. And then once they got the MLP, now there's full speed running it as hard as they can to abolish fishing, like Michael said. Any, they don't want us to fish in, the, in California at all, in lakes, streams, or ocean at all. And unfortunately, us sport fishermen, because we can't agree on anything, we are giving it all to them. You go on one of the boards, like on Bloody Beady Outdoors, or, or, and you'll see guys arguing about stuff and that the environmentalists are looking at that going huh we can get these guys look at they 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 think that we didn't close enough of catalina we should close more of catalina and then they're bringing up those posts and going look so we're helping them close stuff so please stop helping start to try to agree on something because fishermen sport fishermen we don't agree on nothing that's our biggest problem i think is we can't get together as a group and we're all throwing knives at each other's back. Ding, ding, ding. And that's the worst thing we could do. And it is so special to think kids can't get that now. For why? Right. Because we're going to take it away from our children and it's going to be us. It's going to be our fault. That's why we'll go back to this. That's why I built that website, YourSaltWaterGuide.com. Because it's all about teaching the fundamentals and how important it is to learn the fundamentals, to know how to catch the fish that are swimming in the ocean where you're fishing. Because, man, if you don't have a clue what to do, then you're not going to catch anything. And if you don't catch anything, then that's a bad experience. And you're going to go back and you're going to tell your friends, there are no fish. Well, there are, but you just don't have the fundamentals, so you don't really know what to do to catch them. So that's why YourSaltWaterGuide.com is such an important thing out here on the West Coast, I think, is because it's teaching the fundamentals so that when you go on your boat or your friend's boat or on a sport boat, that you're actually going to have an opportunity to catch something. And that's important when you spend in the amount of money we're spending nowadays with the price of fuel and licensing and everything that it takes to go fishing. It's important to have that tug at the end of the line, at the bite, right back. We're right back to the bite again to get a bite. And then what you do with the bite after that is totally up to you. And if you don't know the fund, you, you knew enough of the fundamentals to get the bite, but now you don't know what to do with it. That's not my fault because I built a website that teaches you everything to do from the very beginning to the end. Right? Absolutely. Okay, good. I hope I'm kind of in line with what we're trying to talk about. To me, the sport has been a gift from God my entire life since I was a kid, like three years old. My earliest memories are all about fishing. And the fact that I've gotten to participate in it my entire life, as have you, you've seen how it's enriched the lives of tens of thousands of people. Right. Oh, yeah. It's their life because it's a challenge. Yeah. 
and it's a it's a passion that gets deep into your soul and if you don't have passion in your life then you're just there's nothing once you take the passion out of whatever you're doing then there's nothing left and they they're trying to take the passion they're trying how why why is that so important to take away people's passion and i know it's not our god-given right to go fishing i know that but that's what they try to tell you I think it is. I think that those fish, like I say in a lot of my seminars, those fish out there were, are out there for us to go out there and try to conquer, try to figure out how to catch, how to figure out how to catch them, put them in the white bag with the zipper on it and take them home and eat them. That's why I think that the higher power put them out there. I don't think they're put out there to swim their lives and just swim around. They're fish. They're food source. They're high protein food source. Like your movie talks about, that's what fishing was all about, was that high-protein food source. And then to learn how to go out and catch it with your own fishing pole and have that bite at the end of your line and wind it in and then take that fish home and you know where your food came from today. How spectacular is that? You can't do that very often. You, can't know, you don't know where that chicken came from or you don't know where that cow came from. But if you went out on the ocean or on a lake or a stream and caught that fish, you know exactly where it came from. You know what water he was swimming in. You know how much of his life he gave, how hard he fought so that we can eat him for dinner. It's just spiritual. The whole thing is super spiritual for me. And it's, it's my passion. And it, you're never going to change that. And I don't, it just blows my mind that they want to take that away from the citizens of California. I don't get it. It's never going to make any sense to me. <sighs> it's so scary. Here's what I think needs to be talked about, needs to be said. We've had this bluefin here for since 2015, and I think people have lost touch with what really this whole thing's about. There's so many people that don't understand all the different things that are out here to catch. And they're locked on. I just want a 100-pound bluefin. I just want a 200-pound bluefin. I don't really want anything else. You're, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're totally missing the whole thing. You're missing it. You, you're missing out, man. There's Like, I teach the fundamentals. I run a lot of different boats. And I my guide service. And we go with people. And what I'm teaching you is how to fish. If all you want to do is catch a giant tuna, then you probably don't like fishing. You really don't. And I'm sorry. I'm just telling you, you don't like fishing. If you don't enjoy reeling in a calico bass, reeling in a blue perch, reeling in a sargo, reeling in a bonita, reeling in a bear, if you don't enjoy all that, then you probably really honestly have to look at this and go, yeah, you know, fishing's really not my thing. You know, I'm a golfer which that doesn't make any sense to me. What a waste of a day. But, but there's some ponds on those golf courses that are full of largemouth bass, so I'll be on the golf course with you, I promise. In my bag, there's a fishing pole. But I really think that you're missing out on the whole thing. And people talk about me a lot. Oh, Captain Dave, you just catch calico bass, blue perch, stuff like that. No, I teach people how to fish. I teach them the basics, the fundamentals. If you can catch a if you can bait, cast your bait out consistently and catch a calico bass, learn how to cast to the rock or to the edge of the kelp, you can catch anything that swims. Once you got the fundamentals of how to catch a calico bass, then the rest all comes into play. Learning how to cast 
onto that spot and doing all that. And those are the things that people are missing out on. I see people that don't even have a light rod. All they have is these rods with 200-pound braid on them and they're thick as a broomstick and I just fish for bluefin. Well, you're missing it. You're just missing out on this whole thing, man. Like you, how many days, how many years have you spent at Catalina on the mooring ball? One of the most beautiful places on the planet Earth. All you guys are missing this. Catalina is spectacular. Go over there and spend some time and learn the island and learn about the fish that live there, the calico bass, the bonita, the barracuda, or heaven forbid, the white sea bass, the gray ghost that lives at Catalina. All these things come into play, though, when you learn how to fish for calicos. You get that calico bass thing. That's Talk to Frank Lepresti. What's his very most favorite fish? Now, this man has fished long range his whole life. But he loves the calico bass fish. Loves it. Loves it. There's nothing. There's nothing like it. Yeah, he can go catch 200-pound tuna all day, every day. But he, it's his day to go fishing. He wants to catch a calico bass. My father, right before he passed, he told me one day, he goes, hey, I want to catch a calico bass one more time before. We took Bob Fletcher, Dart, another, another legend in the industry. And him and I and my father went out on the yacht that I was running. And we went, and the big, giant, beautiful Hatteras does 30 knots. Could go anywhere we want. Bluefin were biting. No, we went to Laguna, the areas that are open still, and we fished calico bass, and we caught calico bass. And I held my father up in the corner because he couldn't stand up at that time, but he stood there and he caught his calico bass. And he wound in his calico bass and the smile on his face. It's the most, it's it. Calico bass fishing is the thing. That's what real... Guys that love to fish, that have that deep down passion, we just want to feel the bite. That's it. We want to feel the bite. When you feel that bait and then you feel that bite and that connection, when the line's starting to peel off your reel and you're just about to put it in gear, there's no, that's it. That's the, that is it. And you guys that are just, oh, I just want big belief in you're missing it. You're not giving yourself enough time on water to learn the fundamentals that make this thing so passionate. Because what's going to happen is those guys, the tuna club will tell you, one day this bluefin's going to leave. Might leave tomorrow morning. It might just say, I'm done and leave. And then you guys are going to have all these giant rods and reels and stuff and you're done. And, you're, and they're going to sit in your garage and they're going to collect dust and you're going to miss out on what we have right here in Southern California, which is an unbelievable live bait fishery that no one else on the whole world has. There's nowhere else you can pull up to a bait barge and fill your bait tank up with live bait and then go fishing. In Florida, when I was down there, what's the first thing we got to do in the morning before we do anything? Catch bait. You got to catch bait. You got to throw the net. You got to jiggle up some bait on your sabiki, whatever it is. Not here in Southern California. Michael Folks and I, we want to go fishing tomorrow at 6 o'clock in the morning. We're going to leave the harbor at 6. We're going to drive to the entrance to Newport Harbor. And we're going to stop at San Pedro Bait Barge. And we're going to fill the bait tank up with live bait. That's a, con- a lot of people watch us back east and they don't quite understand the whole concept of what's going on out here. We have a live bait fishery that's in danger right now of being shut down too because of what I talked about the because they're called a forage fish. 75, if not 80% of our live bait that we put in the bait tank goes back in the ocean alive again. We're not even, 
we're not we're using it as chum. We're we're you putting a very small amount of it on our hook, but we're not really burning through a hundred percent of that bait. Maybe eighty percent of it's going back in the ocean alive every time. It goes back and it gets to go to beautiful places. If it gets on the Royal Polaris, it's gonna get to go to a place it's never seen before. Those little baits are so happy. They got to go ride on a long range boat and then go down into deep down into Mexico and go to some beautiful island. And they're like, wow. And then they get thrown in the water and they're on vacation <laughs> with 200 pound tuna chasing them around. But I'm just saying to think that you got to shut down the live bait fishery because it's a forage fish. That's so funny. It's so sad, but it's every angle as we talk about this Southern California is under attack from every position. We just got that carb thing just got, for lack of a better word, like my little sister said, got, they kicked the can down the road. I, everyone thinks it's a victory. Well, they kicked the can down the road till 2035, which 2035 is not going to be a, I'm not going to look too good in 2035 if I'm even here. So it's good for me, but for the kids and for the future, it's kind of scary to think that, that they want to put motors in boats that don't even exist because we're high polluters, which is the farthest thing from the truth. It's just everywhere you look, every angle of this thing is under attack. And I think it's super important to do stuff like this, sit down and talk about this passion and how deep the passion goes in men's body, or men and women's bodies like yours, mine, how deep the passion goes and how it's so important to turn children onto it. If you do anything after you watch this interview, take your grandkids or your nieces or nephews or somebody and get them involved in this thing and go out and show them. And don't take them overnight fishing and don't take them tuna fishing. Take them out and fish half day on a sport boat or take them out on your private boat or whatever and go catch some mackerel. Catch some tom cod, but whatever, whatever you catch, don't ever make it negative. From this point forward, when the child catches that fish, that is the greatest fish they've ever caught, ever. I'll tell you a story. When I was little, going out fishing all the time on the Clemente and the Some Fun, and the and uh, there were no greenback mackerel. There weren't any. That that fish was gone. They said that they fished them out and they were all gone. Just like they told us that the sardine was fished out back when we were kids. I never seen a sardine, neither did you, with anchovies. But the greenback mackerel, I remember when it first showed up. I was fishing with John Manser on the Clemente. He was the captain and I was like 12, 11, little kid, maybe even younger. I wasn't a deckhand yet. And I remember when they showed up, that was the craziest, that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because... You could drop a piece of a plastic trash bag in the water and they ate it. And we were catching fish. And that's all like, I caught like 200 fish the first time I saw mackerel. And that was cool. And I remember it, I'm 60 and I remember it right now. So that's all I'm trying to tell you is for a child, make it fun. Make it fun. Like I have a video on my website about taking kids fishing. Here's a couple of rules I have for taking kids fishing. First of all, make sure, and this is going to piss you off, but make sure that cell phone's charged all the way because you can't stay off your phone. I can't stay off my phone. You can't expect the children, if you've already let them on the phone, you can't expect them to not be on the phone. So bring the phone, 
because you don't want to make fishing a punishment. That's what I'm trying to tell you. If you tell them they can't take their phone, they can't take their iPad, they can't have fun, they don't want to go. Make it fun. Bring the phone or the iPad, whatever it is, so they can play games while you're trying to figure out this fishing thing or where you're going to park or how you're going to, because you're not a member of my website, so now you're going to try to figure it out on your own. Like the guys on Instagram say, oh, don't go on Dave's website. Figure it out on your own like I had to. They're lying. They didn't figure nothing out on their own. They didn't figure it out on their own. Someone like Michael or Billy or Frank, somebody taught them. They didn't figure this thing out on their own. Okay, so those guys that say that, right away you know that they're lying because they didn't figure nothing out. That's why I built the website so you don't have to figure it out on your own. When you The day you get to go fishing, I'm sorry, I get all excited because we're talking about kids. But the day you take your kids fishing, you should catch. Super important. You got to catch fish when you take your child fishing and don't take them offshore fishing. That sucks. That sucks because once they're done, they're done. Check the weather. Make sure it's not going to blow. If it's the day you decided to take your kids fishing and it's going to blow, do something else. Do something else. Take them to the mall. Take them to the park. Take them somewhere to have fun. Next time we'll go fishing. Catch fish. Super important. Mackerel. Tom Cod. Something. Sardines. I don't care what it is. Catch something. Fish with a sabiki. Make it fun. When it's as good as it can be, when they're biting every bite, Every single time they drop their line in the water, stop. Hey, why they're excited and they're having fun? We got to go. We got to go home. I told mom we'd be back or I told dad we'd be back early. We got to go. No, I don't want to leave. We got to. Don't leave when it's boring. Leave when it's super exciting. What will happen? I'm just trying to help you. Now, it's in their brain. That was fun. We had to stop. I can't wait. What can I wait for? To get back out there and do it again. And nothing's going to tickle your heart more than when your child pulls on your pant leg and says, Daddy, can we go, or Mommy, can we go fishing? You won. You just won. You just cracked the code. You won. Another thing I did when my kids were little so that they would eat fish. On the way home, we'd have the mackerel they caught or whatever. I wouldn't take a million. I would take a couple of them. Let them know we're taking them home to eat them. On the way home, stop at McDonald's. Get chicken McNuggets. Okay? Just get a quick... They don't have to know. They're playing on their iPad or whatever. Pull and get some chicken McNuggets or whatever your kids like to eat. Maybe you don't feed them McDonald's. Get them some new... Whatever it is they like to eat, get some of that. When you get home, tell them take a shower. You're going to make the dinner. Whatever they like to eat, put it on the plate. Tell them, here's your fish you caught. Don't feed them the fish they caught. Feed them something they like to eat. Make them think it's the fish they caught. They'll eat fish for the rest of their life. Just make it as fun as you possibly can. And keep it fun and keep it lighthearted. And finish the day earlier than later. Can you imagine your child sitting here at 60 talking like me? Or you? About fishing? Michael's whole... This is his office. It's all... You can't... You trip over fishing rods everywhere you look. What does Michael want to do? Go fishing. Well, yeah, not today. It's a little windy and cold and rough out there. But yeah, we want to go fishing. We want to go fishing. That's all we want to do is go fishing. That's all I want to do is go fishing. That's what you want your children. That's the gift. They're united. They won't. They didn't give up the calico bass. They didn't give up anything. They were united. They stood strong and they stood tall. And 
One of my passions is teaching people how to hoop net for lobsters. This is what I talk about all the time. If you have me and you go out on the vintage and we have the greatest night of hoop netting we could possibly have, you know how many we could have? 14. You can have seven. That's it. It could be the greatest night of our lives. We can have 14. Do you know how many the commercial guy can have tonight? Not tonight, but during the season? As many as he can catch. He could have a billion of them tonight. But you and I were allowed seven. And if you read the boards and you listen to people, they go, I, I haven't caught any lobsters for three weeks. I think we need to change the limits. On us. On the sport guy. It's like, are you, would you shut up? No, the reason you're not catching any is because you don't know what you're doing. Because you're not a member of your saltwater guide. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. I give you every spot. I don't want to hold anything back. I want you all to be successful so you help us, like Michael just said, fight to keep the right. But you guys that can't catch a lobster in your hoop net, you're willing to give up two lobsters. I've, I've read it a lot. Oh, we, we only take five. Shut up. No, seven. That's all you're allowed. Seven. But the commercial guy can have as many, because they are united. They're not, they stand tall and tight. And they understand if you give away anything, they're taking everything. Which we, as sport fishermen, we don't understand that. And we're always willing to give. Oh, yeah, just take my lobster. Take two. I only need five. You don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand. Once you let them in, they're coming for the whole thing. They're going to take all of all of your seven. They don't want, they're not going to be happy with two of them. They're going to take all of them. I'm just, I, I just get wound up because... Well... Be able to feed them <laughs> Yeah, because they're starving to death. Yes, we got to take care of our sea lions because they're starving to death. But Michael was hit on a perfect subject. The commercial guys are united, totally stand strong and tall, and they won't let anybody in. That's why they're allowed to get away with what they are allowed to get away with because they're united. And if we could just unite for five minutes, it would be mind-blowing. It would be, it would change the whole, but we can't. We can't. Everybody thinks someone's out to get them. Someone's out to take something away from me. I'm not giving anybody any information. I'm not telling nobody nothing. Really? And then you stand on the corner and you're like, well, can't fish that whole area of the island anymore because you didn't tell anybody anything about it. And they just took it. And that's sad because sport fishermen can't unite on anything. CCA is about the only thing we have fighting for us right now. CCA, there's nothing really else. We can stand on top of the mountain and yell, but you got to get involved with somebody. I would get involved with CCA. Got to talk, call Wayne, look CCA up on on the internet and get involved. Get involved, gang, because it's getting taken. Even if it's just giving them your credit card number. Right. Make a little donation so that Wayne can keep going out there and fighting the fight and keeping his guys going, headed in the right direction so that we can keep stuff open so we can go fishing, so we can get the bite. My dad would most want to be remembered for giving back to the community, giving back. He sponsored so much stuff with the kids and and Fish for Life. If you got to go down there and film that and be a part of that, Fish for Life is a phenomenal organization, and my dad was right there on the forefront of that. And man, when you put that red carpet down and those kids get to walk down that red carpet and get their name now introducing, da 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 and that child walks down there and they get to go, and Tommy White 
and Brian, the guys that run those boats, they understand that it's just about fish. It's about catching them anything that swims. They don't need a big bluefin. They just need a tug. The bite. They want the bite. They need... And my dad is so, so many organizations and so many things. You go and you look and you just go, wow, he was in on that and he was in on this. He was constantly giving back because he was standing in the right spot at the right time and got that landing and was able to move into Dana Point in 71 and he had nine boats in there and he... But he understood that, yeah, he worked his ass off, but there's a lot of people out there that didn't have that opportunity. So he was constantly giving back to the industry. But the real big thing is for the last 40 years, he was out there fighting the fight to keep this thing open so that we could all do. My father was instrumental on this bluefin. If you go and you look, you can believe me or you don't have to believe me, but if you go and you Google it, my dad was right there. They took the limit of bluefin to zero. Zero was the take allowed in 2020 and 2013. It was zero. You weren't allowed to have any. Could you imagine if my dad said, I've already done, I, I'm done. I'm, I live up on the, Don Hanson, I live up on the top of the hill in San Clemente. I got nine, I'm done. I don't need to do this. I don't need to fly to Washington. I don't need to fly to Peru. I don't need to go to all these places. And he just sat back and he said, whatever. No, he said, no, that's wrong. The bluefin aren't extinct. And he fought and he fought and he stood in the gap and he made sure that we were allowed to have two. And if we weren't allowed to have two, there would be no sport fishing industry right now. 2015, 2014, it was over. I mean, if we look back at the history, there was... All the boats were getting foreclosed on. There, there, there was nothing. There was nothing to catch. There was nothing going on. Everything was over. And then 2015, higher power thing, here comes El Nino. And all these fish rushed into our neighborhood. And then the aftermath of El Nino left over this giant biomass of bluefin that were stuck in here. And they're still here. It's 2022. We're sitting here. And there's bluefin right outside of San Clemente Island, right now, swimming around. That bluefin got stuck up in here, and it saved the industry. It saved the sport fishing industry. But man, if my dad didn't fight that fight, and we weren't allowed any, there wouldn't be, there would be nothing going on. But he stood there. My dad was constantly fighting the fight for us, behind the scenes, going out there and talking to the people and going going to these big summits in Washington and stuff, and he would go from room to room to room, smoozing the guys and rubbing their backs and getting the stuff passed and getting the things that no one knows about. And so that's what he would say was, somebody needs to step up. So who stepped up? My sister. She's out. She's in Washington, D.C. today, right now. My, my sister's in Washington. She's got a landing to run down in Dana Point with all the people and all. But she's in Washington because she knows how important it is. They're trying to shut everything down. So she's out there taking notes and answering questions and doing what needs to be done. She's standing in the gap where my dad used to stand. It's pretty spectacular to see the, the, the whole thing. The legacy that my father set up for us. And, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. I got life pretty handled, but... I still want people to catch fish. I, I'm constantly out there teaching and trying to pass on the knowledge to all these people and 
because of how cool it feels inside of me and how wonderful that feeling is when I get to go out fishing. And I think if you can pass that along to somebody, and I'm sorry, we're going to go a little bit deeper. A big thing is I got sober 35 years ago. And once I got sober, that made me start to understand how important this whole thing is, the connection with the ocean and with the fish. And so before I got sober, nothing mattered except that getting high. That was the only thing that mattered and I didn't understand. And I thought I fished to make the money to get high. That's, I mean, I'm just being honest. But once I got sober and started to look at life and see what the passion was, I want everybody to have the passion. And if you watch any of my videos right up to today, man, I'm yelling, screaming, hooting, hollering because every single fish that we hook, it matters so much to me because I know it could be that fish that changes that person's life. And if you could change a person's life by catching a fish, how bitching. And if you could put that passion into them. So that's why I'm, People go, oh, your website, you only charge $4.99. You should charge more. No, 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 no. I want everybody. I want everybody. I'm not trying to hit a home run off of your membership. I want you all to be on there so that you can all see what this passion is. And if you don't know how to catch the fish and you got your bitching boat and you go out and you're going to think there are no fish. So I think it's important to teach this to people so that they get Maybe not all of them are going to get it, but if a couple of them get it like you and I got it, I won. I'm winning, man. And I see people all the time that come up to me and shake my hand and say, thank you. Thank you. You changed my life. You changed my life. I've had men, women, children all the time. I've had children that grew up to be fathers and got kids and it's Captain Dave, this is the guy and that's... Oh. A heart just goes, thank you, man. Those are free. When they give you an attaboy for teaching them how to fish, that's free. And that makes me feel so good. That's why I do it. That's why I'm still doing it right now. When we, we leave here, I'm going fishing, man. I'm making videos, teaching people how to fish, putting game plans up every Thursday so you know where to go to catch fish. Well, the white sea bass thing, the, the white sea bass were like huh, fished horribly strong by the commercial industry the the gillnet fishermen fished the lip they put gillnets right through the middle of the kelp beds all up and down the coast when we were kids we saw them all the time gillnets going right through the middle of the kelp and those were just giant fences and if you don't know what a gillnet is you have to look it up and see but it's like a fence and it they'll set them at the it might be from the bottom to up six feet. Whatever the depth is that the fish are swimming in, they have a fence so that the fish can't get through it. And so the white sea bass fishery was basically just fished out. Let's be perfectly honest. And it wasn't because of you and me with a fishing pole. It was because of these nets that would catch more than you and I could catch in our lifetime in one set. And they would... So my dad worked with Hubs Research Center down in San Diego it's part of SeaWorld and Hubs is the research center there and they put together a plan to start a hatchery of the white sea bass. And so they had catch out pens at Catalina where guys would go and catch the bigger fish and put them in these pens on the backside in the isthmus and then they would take that brood stock and they would take the eggs and then they would take all the eggs down to Hubs and then they would hatch them into these little tiny, like, look like, 
I don't know, polywogs. And uh, I remember, gosh, my son's 29. So I'd say 32 years ago, I went to Hubs Research Center to see what was going on down there because my dad was so instrumental in this whole thing. And there was a biologist, I, rem I, can't, I think his name was Donald Kent, but I know his last name was Kent. I know that for a fact. And I think his first name was Donald, okay? And so he took me, because I was Don Hansen's son, for a tour of the facility, and I got to see the whole thing. And they were taking these little finger, they were taking these little polywogs, and they were turning them into fingerlings, and then they would take the fingerlings, and they would disperse them. I think Mission Bay had a grow-out pen. I know in the lagoon and Oceanside, there was a grow-out pen. Dana Point Harbor, there was a grow-out pen. Newport Harbor, there was a grow-out pen. And then up, I want to say, Marina Del Rey, mm -hmm. there was a grow-out pen. And they stocked them with these millions of fingerlings. And then they started to put this sea bass back out. But the really unique thing, I'm going so fast, but they gave these fish an antibiotic called... No, amoxicillin, I think it is, or something. But it wasn't for the... It was because under the light, they could light the fish up and it would glow from this antibiotic that they fed this fish in their fish food so they would know if it was a hatchery fish. That was before they started putting the, the um, tags in their head. They put like tetracycline or some antibiotic, amoxicillin. I don't remember exactly what... The, Don Kent... It was 30-something years ago, and you remember I did a lot of stuff in the 70s, so my memory's not perfect. But he showed us under the light that they would glow. And, that, and then the fish that weren't hatchery fish didn't glow. And then they started taking these little hatchlings a little long, later down the line and putting a tag in their head. They would put a little tag in each one of these fish's heads, and they still are today. And that's why it's so big time to bring the heads in and turn them in so you can find out. But that's when they started to learn where these sea bass went. They would dump these sea bass in Mission Bay. And two years later, they would catch them on the Cortez Bank. These little tiny fish would swim from Mission Bay all the way to the Cortez Bank. Or they would catch a catch a fish at the Cortez Bank, and then a year later, they would catch it at Pal the same fish at Palos Verdes. Such a weird fish. Doesn't make any But no one knew anything about them until they started this hatchery project. And now, not, the, not since El Nino, because the white sea bass is a, more of a cold water fish than a warm water fish. So El Nino kind of slowed down the white sea bass thing that was going on. It didn't, the fish just moved. Northern California, they're, they're, they had really good years the last few years up in Northern California, San Francisco and stuff. People, the microwave culture of fishermen nowadays are like, oh, the white sea bass are No, 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 no. They're not gone. They're just moving around. It cycles. As soon as the water stays cold here and we have some consistent cold water years with more squid, those sea bass will be back in here. But yeah, my pops was super big time. In that ocean enhancement stamp that goes on your fishing license, no one knows what that's for. That's for the hatchery program. That's for the white sea bass hatchery program that my dad and Donald Kent were so involved in back in 30-something years ago. And paid for by the fishermen. Yeah, by us. You and me. That participate. Right, that go fishing. If you don't have your dollar enhancement, now it's $2, whatever it is. You don't have your enhancement stamp, your license isn't 
you can't, it doesn't work. You have to have that enhancement stamp on there. And the, the reason why they just didn't include it in the price is because they wanted you to understand that the stamp was going to give back to the hatchery program in the ocean. We're not talking about trout hatchery. We're talking about white sea bass ocean enhancement. It's not going to the trout hatcheries. It's straight going to bring the white sea bass back to Southern California. And as fishermen, we're trying to replenish a species that was virtually commercially harvested to extinction. Right. And so as fishermen, sport fishermen, we're paying to repopulate a fish that we had nothing to do with getting rid of. Since we're here, the marlin fishing in the channel out here was epic. Epic, epic, epic. You know where they all went, though? No one talks about And I'm just going to uncover, and there's going to be some guys that are pissed, but most of them are dead now. The gill nets. When they figured out that swordfish... They could gill net the swordfish, and the channel out here had a billion swordfish in it. Let's be honest. There were guys harpooning five, 600 a season out here. You remember back in the day when you were wandering around out there doing it? I don't know. You were there, yeah. and so was I. I don't remember much of it, but we were there. But the, there was a phenomenal swordfish fishery out here, just harpoon. Then all the harpoon guys learned about this drift net this gill net, drift net thing, and they would set them out here in the channel, like the 267, the 277, the 209, the Avalon Bank. They put these giant drift nets. And there wasn't one boat. There was 50 boats. And they were all doing it. And they were really, really, really good at it. They were good. And they, no one knows this, but you know what the bycatch was? Was the striped marlin. And there were nights, not one boat, one boat, one guy I know personally very, very well. They were getting two, three hundred marlin a night. And that's just one boat. And there was 50 boats. And that's all considered a bycatch. They would roll it, just dump it over the side. One boat, 300 marlin a night, dumping the carcasses in one, just so they could get their swordfish. Right. And not a... Because it was money. And you're the captain. You're no better. You're, you're the captain. I'm the deckhand. We're just making money. That's all. We're just making money. It's like working at the grocery store or whatever. We're just putting in our time. Not really looking at the big picture. We're looking at how many of these marlin we got to dump before we get to that black fish in there. There's blue, 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 blue. And then here comes a black. Oh, here comes a black one as it would roll over the roller. Because it would be all blue and silver, and then a black fish would come over, and that would be the swordfish he'd be coming up because they're all dead. They lost all their color, but the marlin still have blue. But for every 50 marlin, you'd get a swordfish, things like that. And that's where all the, sword, all the marlin went. That's why, man, the, back when we were kids, everyone talked about the phenomenal marlin bite in the channel. Now you just see a very small amount showing up. It's coming back. But it's going to take a very, very long time. Those, those big, giant drift net gill nets aren't in our water here. But they're in other waters where those fish are swimming around. But that's what happened to our marlin fishery. That's what happened to it. That wasn't me and you catching marlin with the rod and reel. That's why, I'm sorry, I'm going to be controversial. That's why I laugh when people get mad at me for killing a marlin. But I, I'll take it because my, we eat it. We smoke it. 
my deckhands down in Mexico, they didn't, they didn't get a bailout during this uh, pandemic. So they didn't have any food. So we take a marlin, that feeds their family for a week. So it's really hard for me to go, oh, oh throw it back. I, I'm sorry, it's food. And I don't have an adverse effect of the population. I'm not that good of a marlin fisherman, first of all. And second of all, I can't imagine throwing back a 150-pound fish when my crew's starving and their family's starving to death. So yeah, I take the marlin because I talk to the guys that used to catch 300 in a night and throw them all over. Throw all of them and they were all dead. So I'm pulling down some covers, but that's what was going on in the 70s. In the early 80s, right here in southern, beautiful, sunny Southern California. But the only people that they go after is the sport fishermen. Because we're the only ones left fishing. Because <laughs> they're all gone. They all left. They all moved on because they, they wiped out the species. <laughs> right. So they can't blame us. We're not fishing anymore. It's the sport guys. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, the sport guys. If you have a great year, you caught 20 marlin out here in the channel. Yeah. And you... Burned a billion dollars worth of fuel. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. It is crazy. Crazy, crazy times. Come up and slap Dave Hansen on stage. Let oh, me yeah. know how that works I don't for think you. He would have walked off the stage and <laughs> slapped you. Right. If you'd been on stage, he'd slap you. He, he wouldn't be walking off no. the Academy Awards. They'd be taking him off in a stretcher. Probably. Oh, no it probably wouldn't be very good for him. No, it would not have turned out as well. But. Yeah, like Michael said, we're not out to hurt anybody. We're here to help the industry in every aspect. So just remember when you're listening to somebody talk negative about me, ask them this question. Have you ever met them? Probably not. Probably not. No, because if they have, they wouldn't say that. Right. Because this is me, smiling, laughing, having a good time. I try not to take life too serious. Just got to have fun. There was, like my dad said, there was... 30 sport fishing landings in Newport. At least. There, every corner had a sport boat. Somebody had a charter boat. Full. full every day. People wanted to go. Yeah. And everybody was nice yeah. and happy and sharing and yeah. caring. American spirit. Yeah. And thank you for letting me see your show. I got to watch a little bit of this movie that you're making. Let's talk about it for a minute. I got to watch a little bit of the movie that you're making. Oh my gosh, gang. I want to see the whole thing. I can't wait. And I want to watch it over and over. And it's going to be the way for you to understand, for everybody out there to understand how deep this path, when you watch this, just, you get teary-eyed. Those of you that are in the industry, you can grab it and you can hold on to it and you can show your friends and your family. This is what, this is where the passion comes from. I mean, the way you did it, the way you put that first 10 minutes that I saw together is, whew, it's spectacular. It is really bitching. And I'm so glad that you got to put this together and I just can't wait for the premiere. When it comes out, I'll be there. Front row, center, I'll be standing right there. I'm so grateful for you to take the time and come and, and be a part of it. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. A little bit about your dad, your family's legacy, yourself, the sport, and why you love the. I mean, it's all about the passion. Absolutely. And your TV show for years and years and years was like, that brought it all home. It was like, you, you knew in the industry, you knew you were something if you made it on Inside Sport Fishing. You did. Come on. 
it was the shit. I was in the very beginning, man. I was on on there in the beginning, so I always had that little feather in my cap. I was on inside sport fishing back in the beginning before you guys even knew about it. <laughs> yeah, cool. We go way back, and thank you for letting me come to your studio and do this show with you. Thanks for everything you're doing, Dave. You're welcome. Yeah. Yay. Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. Far out. Is that good? Oh, my God. It's phenomenal. All right, good. Phenomenal. I mean, shockingly. <laughs> phenomenal okay because your passion is exactly where i'm kind of going with the film right, right now and you were uninhibited in and and expressing how much you love the sport you know like it's it's amazing because most guys won't most guys aren't up that front you know they won't allow their emotions to be that they got them all that uh-huh thank you yay I'm glad we got to do it. Oh, me too. I'm so stoked.